titled the message this morning, Our Only Hope, and uh, then a subtitle, <laughs> How to Win the Believer's War. How to Win the Believer's War. So uh, what is this all about? Um, titles are something that are obviously, uh, I take a liberty in choosing and and they involved a lot of interpretation and, and hopefully some challenge and some interest into the subject before us. Um, but I wanted to uh, uh, just uh, read through this text first with you, and then we'll go through it verse by verse. So Psalm 143, a psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I go down like... Like, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit Lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. And you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. I don't know if you noticed, but there's some real parallels in the verses, and that's due to Hebrew poetry. Um, that's how Hebrew poetry works. There's uh, an alignment with the first verses and the last verses, and then sequentially through. Um, and then the middle is like an emphasis. This is the message that David wants to, to you to get. But just back to our text and my silly title, Our Only Hope, uh, though I don't mean it to be silly, I, I mean by, by me calling it this myself, um, Our Only Hope. This is a, 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 a prayer, isn't it, of David? It's obviously a prayer, a desperate plea of David to be heard by God. And he goes through these, these steps and as I want to go through with you, 
Um, many in history have, have called this the seventh of the penitential psalms. So these, these psalms are read, and uh, this one is the last one, but many people don't understand why it was chosen. Even many of the commentators I've read, they, they don't have a clear grasp why this one was chosen as a penitential psalm. Now that's not inspiration or inspirational, um, it's just a point that these psalms were chosen. But uh, in regards to that, there's an interesting fact in history. Martin Luther, when he nailed the 95 theses on the door of the castle of Wittenberg, the very first theses, the very first line that he was proclaiming what is this, translated into English, of course, because I don't know German, but... When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. The entire life of a believer should be one of repentance. Now why would Martin Luther put that in these 95 Theses? Well, it was because the Latin Vulgate had translated Matthew 4.17, Jesus' words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, had been translated in part by, and I can't say these Latin words because I don't know Latin either, but they mean to do penance. And Martin Luther was pointing out there's a huge difference between doing penance and repentance. Doing penance implicates we do something, we do something to correct or to, in, in sorrow or in, in trying to upright what we have done wrong. Repentance is a U-turn, a turning away from sin. So this became a sacrament in the Roman Catholic Church. You know that, you've heard of it, doing penance. And uh, it became very important feature, and it became part of the, what we call, as Protestants, as protesters, part of their works doctrine, their works to do something to change, to, to, to right their sin, to bring favor with God. And Martin Luther was making a point. No. The Christian life must be one of repentance. Must be one of repentance. One of turning from sin. And not just to be saved, but every day. Why? Because as Christ has saved us, He has justified us, right? He has justified us. His blood covered our sin. So in that is what we base our forgiveness. So this isn't about forgiveness, but this is about the fact that we continually, we are continuing to live with sin, an indwelling sin in us, right? That God hasn't removed from us. Oh, man, I don't know how many times you have, have prayed or hoped that God would remove that sin from you. Now, <laughs> he will one day. He has promised to do so when we see him. 
We will be glorified. We will be like him. But now, here and now, he has chosen that we have this battle. This battle with sin that indwells us. And how do we live with that? How do we live this Christian life, one of forgiveness, but fighting this indwelling sin? And that is through repentance. And I believe this this psalm directs us in this way. So that is the battle right off, and that is our only hope. Our only hope for forgiveness is, to, is through the gift of repentance, re- repentant faith that God gives us when he justifies us, when he first calls us and we are justified by him. We recognize our sin, we confess our sin, and we re- we've received his forgiveness and we are born again. We are saved from his judgment but we live with this indwelling sin. And so David comes at the beginning of this this psalm with a humble plea. It it has struck me recently how it seems, now this is a judgment on my part and and a conception, but it seems that there has been an understanding that people can demand forgiveness of God and demand forgiveness of others. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Look how David comes to God. He says in in verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. What is he recognizing here? He's recognizing his need, his need to be heard by God, God's intervention in his life. But it's a plea. And it's a humble plea. It's a plea for God's mercy. Right? What is mercy? It's not getting what I deserve. I like to tell kids that and helping them to understand it. It's not getting what I deserve. It's an understanding of what I deserve and asking, pleading, Lord, don't give me what I deserve. And look how he does this. He appeals to God's character. Did you see that? I'll go back. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness. So he appeals to God's character. This isn't because of how good he is or all the things that he's accomplished or achieved. He knows that is worthless. That is full of guilt. So he appeals to the one who can do something about it. He appeals to God's faithfulness. As I thought about that, um, it just struck me. Because we, why, this is one of the mainstays, the, the, the main me- measures for which we would come to God. 
is that he is faithful. He remains the same. He remains unchanged. Right? I was also thinking about my trade. (laughs) And I'm a plumber, and I've worked in the mechanical construction end of things for almost, well, this will be the 20th year coming up. And uh, long before that, actually, but actually in the trade. And I love thinking about what I do and how it relates to God and how God created it and how God holds it together in his hands. Now you all think, well, you're a plumber. (laughs) Just come out and say it, Dan. You're a plumber. And we all know the law of plumbing. How hard could it be? Water flows downhill, right? (laughs) But that's the faithfulness of God. Think about it. Why does gravity work and why can we depend on it? Because God made it. There's other principles that are a little bit more complicated in refrigeration. And we can count on that. We can count on those principles. We can count on the law of thermodynamics. Right? We do. Why? Because God is faithful. That started me to think even a little farther. You know what? In thinking about God's faithfulness, that also means He's the God of consequences. He wrote those laws. If I do this, if I step up, I'm going to or I go too far, I could fall. God made the law of consequences. Oh man, all, most of my life I've, I've struggled with sin. I've known it. And I've sometimes cried out to God, God, remove this desire from me. I don't know if you've had that experience, but I... I have, and I fought it, and I fought it, and I fought it, and I've prayed over it. God, just take this away. I can't, I, I, I succumb every time. It's too much. God is faithful. He wrote those laws, and when I Instead of praying that he take that away, I should be praying, God, keep me from it. You know, it's a difference of perspective. What is my focus when I'm praying for God to remove that sin? It's on the sin instead of on him who is pure and righteous altogether and faithful. That's been one of the most treasured things that I've learned in this study to bring to you this morning. Because it's been a a lifelong thing and a a misunderstanding that God is the God of consequences. And forgiveness doesn't mean He erases the consequences. Oh, how we wish that were true, right? Now, But he promises to walk with us through the consequences. He promises that he's greater than the consequences. He promises that he's the author of the consequences. Now isn't that assuring? 
That when we recognize, oh man, this is, I, I deserve this. I did that. I deserve this. But God, you are greater. And I can trust you. And I know that you are with me. As I was driving in this morning, the sun was there. It was rising, but there was a big cloud in front of it. And I thought of that, how that cloud is like my sin. And for David, as we, we read, encounter this text, that, that cloud is like a separation, but it's not real. The sun is still there. It's not changed. It's still shining as bright as ever. Right? But my sin has put up that separation that I now feel from the sun. But the sun's still there. God is still there. He hasn't moved. He hasn't changed. Even when I sin. So here's David's desire to be heard, his plea for mercy, his appealing to God's character on the nature of God and his faithfulness, and then his righteousness. Man, he is right. He is always right. He is pure. He is holy. We should be appealing or going nowhere else, should we? When we pray, when we, we need help, when we need Him, we can count on he, His righteousness. He is perfect without sin, always entirely right. And then here is David's request. He, he realizes as he says these words, and your righteousness, uh-oh, I have a problem. Lord, he's pleading still, enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. Wow, he needs God. He needs him. And yet he sees, he recognizes, whoa. How can a holy God have anything to do with me? Except that I ask Him not to judge me. Not to give me what I deserve. This is the conundrum for all of human all, everyone who has ever lived, the universality, universality of sin, it's for, it's, it affects us all. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God has given his law, his, us his law, not so that we can circumvent sin <laughs> and overcome it, as it were, do penance, as it were. No, it's, um, it's, to, it's the spotlight that shows I'm a sinner. 
The law reveals who we are and our great need. Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So, in order to be saved by God, it must be on the basis of a righteousness that isn't mine. Right? Because it's not in me. I can't do it. So God intervened. He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life without sin. And then He was murdered a criminal's death that I deserved on the cross. He paid for my sin. He, David's word of servant there is literally slave in the previous verse. And he's referring to the fact that he has been purchased. He has been bought. And that's what Jesus' blood did. It forgives us and it purchases, purchases us from the slavery market of sin to become his slave. A slave of righteousness. Whose righteousness? His righteousness. And for all who will believe on him, he transfers that righteousness to us. We wear it like a garment. It covers us. Remember Adam and Eve? Has it ever bothered you that God said the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die? And they ate and they didn't die. What happened? God extended mercy, didn't he? And they saw they were naked, and he covered them. He covered them. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. It didn't work. It wasn't adequate. I felt fig leaves, and they feel really fuzzy. <laughs> they feel like they'd be really nice. But I was sweating at the time, too. I was a little boy. I was sweating profusely. And I took that leaf, and I thought, oh, this would be great to wipe my face. And I did, and it was like rubbing sandpaper across my face. It was horrible. Can, I, can you imagine that on your skin? Horrible choice. Horrible, inadequate. And yet God covered them with animal skin. How... Did he get an animal skin? Someone else had to die. An animal, an innocent one, had to die to provide the covering. So there was substitutionary death even at the very beginning as God extended his mercy. He wasn't unjust. He fulfilled his 
command, His sentence for sin. There was death. But it wasn't Adam and Eve immediately. They were spiritually dead, yes. We can't see that. We couldn't see that, right? We see it as they struggle in their sin and their, their children as they fought. But God's mercy was extended. His righteousness. And Jesus rose again the third day. And He sits on the throne. He ascended. He sits on His throne at the right hand of the Father praying for you and for me. Here's the, this is the mystery that Pastor read about in 1 Peter, right? That the angels long to look at. Isn't this fantastic? God's righteousness and man's sinfulness. And how did God deal with it? He dealt with it. He said, you can't. But I will through my Son. God is righteous and we are not. God is the judge of all and must act justly. God pronounced a sentence for death, for sin, and it was death. Because there's none righteous. And this is a hard thought to think about, but, you know, that sentence is still carried out. We still face death, don't we? we we've experienced the death of friends. We've experienced the death of family. And why? Because we're sinners. God hasn't removed that consequence yet. It's a consequence that He wrote. And though He offers forgiveness for all who will trust and believe in His Son, that consequence remains. It's the right sentence for sin because God is righteous. Because He's just. But God's, there's also God's judgment, eternal judgment, that for those who are forgiven, they don't receive. That judgment was placed on Jesus Christ. God took His own judgment for our sin so that we might be free to serve Him, to live for Him, to be righteous, be slaves of righteousness. Peter, in Acts 2.22, he said, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
Peter quotes David and says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And so I have to ask, Have you turned from your sin to receive the freedom of this judgment by God? Have you accepted that Jesus' judgment on your behalf was sufficient? And have you received forgiveness of sins? Receive Him today. Receive Him today. But we must have this view of sin that God has. And this is where it, we struggle. Because we, what, what is our tendency? We want to justify it. I did that because, right? Make excuses. We want to, we, we, we're so used to feeling the victim. <laughs> and we have been sinned against, haven't we? We all know what that feels like. It doesn't feel good. And yet, we're totally blind to the fact that of the destruction our sin brings in our lives and the lives of others. We are offenders. But 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful. He is what? He is who He is, faithful. As David appealed to Him, He's faithful and he's just. That means he's righteous. He's faithful and he's righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So to receive forgiveness, we must confess We must admit to our sin after we have been found out is not confession. (laughs) To admit our sin after we've been found out is not confession. Do you remember the story of Achan? Achan and Joshua? God had told Joshua that everything in the city of Jericho was his. They were to take nothing but destroy it all. Every animal, every man, every woman, every child, everything. Every article of clothing was to be burnt. All the gold. Why? Because it belonged to God. And he was putting them under his judgment. Achan, however saw some pretty nice stuff. And he took it home and he hid it under his tent. Israel went out to battle and they lost. God's judgment now affected the whole nation of Israel because of Achan's sin. Listen to what Achan said. As, Joshua, as Achan was found out, he didn't say, I did it. 
No, they drew lots and God pointed to Achan. And when God pointed to Achan, listen to what Joshua says. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. and Behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent And brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen, and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire, and, they, and stoned them with stones, and they rose, raised over him a great, great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Now, if you would ask me, Achan's confession was a pretty good confession, Right? He said he sinned against the Lord. He coveted. He stole. He hid it. But it was all after he was found out. So the consequence was judgment. What is confession then? It is to say the same thing. To say what we have done. To admit to it. Through the fear of hurting, of bringing up, digging up bones, as I used to fear. Oh man, if I confess, it'll be like digging up, a, digging up bones and I'll just make things worse. No, that's a lie. We must tear out our pride and it will hurt. And we must say what we have done. Call it what God calls it. We can't justify it. We can't make excuses. We can't call it a sickness. So many times we put the, word, the, frit, the clause ism behind it, right? To make it sound better. Like it's a something we're, that is a, not our fault. That is something I caught or inherited or was culturally put on me. Some sort of ism. And I just got to say here, we as a church cannot forgive. We cannot forgive sin. That's not our place. That's, that again goes back to the Catholic church where people thought that they could go to their priest and confess their sin and, and receive forgiveness. That's not our place. Only the one who was offended can forgive. And When we sin, we assault God. 
When we sin, we assault God. And so we must go to Him and confess to Him. And if there's others that we've wronged, that we've sinned against, we must go to them and confess to them and receive their forgiveness. But we, we can cause others to stumble if we, in weakness, if we say our sin to, you know, confess our sin to people who weren't involved in it. So we must be careful. We can tend to glorify our sin rather than their Savior who offers us forgiveness. So be on guard. Confess to whom you've offended. And let our story, our testimony, be about the amazing work of forgiveness that our Savior has accomplished. Though we deserve death and judgment, He forgave us. He cleansed us. Not at our demand, but at our humble appeal. Our humble plea. He, God, through the work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, grants repentant faith. And this, this kind of repentant faith is evidence to all. It's, we're an open book saying, look what God did. He's forgiven me. I'm a new person. I'm a new creation in Christ. What was the reason for David's prayer, for this prayer to be heard, for his acknowledgement of being a sinner? It was the enemy. The enemy. And I titled this, The Enemy from Without and Within. The enemy from without and within. Sin is cruel, is it not? It lies to us saying, oh, I'm going to be fun. I'm going to please you. I'm going to satisfy you. But it's cruel. It leaves us desolate. It destroys. It brings death. So here's the purpose the cause of this cry to God in prayer. And these circumstances, these circumstances are honest and invoke deep feelings. Just feel them as I read them and as you read them this morning in verses 3 and 4. They invoke deep feelings. The enemy pursues. We can't go anywhere to escape. I'm sure all of you have experienced, as C.H. Spurgeon would say, slander has a depressing effect on the spirits. It is a blow that overthrows the mind as though it were knocked down with a fist. I'm sure we've all experienced that. It's horrible. It hurts. Let's read this with me. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. He's crushed. His life is crushed to the ground. In the east especially, the ground is a place of filth. It's a place of filth. I, I, I was so shocked when Kathleen was sharing with me. You know, they were over there. 
they wear flip-flops, right? It's hot. They wear flip-flops, and they sit on the ground. But she found out that it was an insult to others if the bottom of her foot was seen or pointed at another person. <laughs> Why? Because the ground represents filth. It represents a place that you want to be clean from. And so you don't display or um, perp, you know, point your foot at someone else. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. It's like he's describing he's being pushed down. He's being forced to live as if he lives in a grave, like a dead man. He's crushed. It results in a weakness, a paralyzing ache. He's appalled. He's paralyzed. Can you identify with these poetic realities? Well, Jesus did. <laughs> Listen to Matthew 26, 38. He said, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And when we read that, we're reminded in Hebrews chapter 4 that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus experienced these things. He felt the sorrow. He felt the rejection. He was tormented. And how can we respond as, as, we, as believers who have received our forgiveness in Christ Jesus? But we struggle, like David here, in crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, help me. This is the reason for my plea for mercy. It's because I'm down. I'm trampled. I have enemies. Listen to what God's Word says in Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, those who are saved, according to his purpose. Whose purpose? Why does God bring these difficult things into our life? And what will he do with them? He will work them together for good according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things?
David comes to this point of telling God that how he is pressed down and paralyzed. And then he gives us this, these central verses, the vo- verses he wants to declare as a point. He wants to make a point with these verses. It's the resolve to remember. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I remember the days of old. David is choosing at this point of being of low, feeling so low, of being pressed down, of being oppressed. He is choosing to remember what God has done, what God has accomplished. We can start by creation. In Psalm 36, that's where he goes. He starts with creation and he says, For the loving kindness, for your loving kindness endures forever. And he goes on and on through these recollections, through these memories of what God has done to free them, to to, um, provide for every need in Psalm 136. We're called to meditate on God's words. Works. He uses these words, remember, meditate, ponder. We see God does not change in how, he, in how he deals with his people. Whatever God brings into our lives should bring us to this. Remember, meditate, ponder all the things that God has done. It will stir our hearts and emotions from self-pity, from sorrow, from anxiety, from fear, from even sin. Everything that would cause us to feel far from God to a conviction of His closeness and an intimate, loving care of Him in every detail of His story and our individual lives moment by moment for His glory. These next verses are just amazing because if you just read them over quickly, you could miss out. But I call this section, Reach Out for Satisfaction from God Alone. Reach Out for Satisfaction from God Alone. Look at these words. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you. Like a parched land, Selah. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Who is he looking to? He's looking for his answer from the Lord, O Lord. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord, for I have fled to you for refuge. You see how in every aspect he is saying, Lord, 
I feel I need this. I need you to hear me. I, I, have, this, I have this conviction that I, my sin separates me from you, but I look to you to meet me. I look to you for deliverance. I thirst for you. Active reaching, active thirsting for God. We realize He is our sustainer and gives true, meaningful life. Our living before was like death. When we thought we could do whatever we wanted, it was like death. It was like slavery compared to living in Christ, living in righteousness. We care about what He says. We care about His Word. We don't want that separation that sin brings as we move from Him in that sin. He, David then calls us to submit to the Spirit. Oh, I left out a slide. I'm going to have to read it for you and then uh, come back to this. No, I read that, didn't I? Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. Yes, I've fled to you for refuge. Look at how he says in the morning. We'll dedicate time. We will set apart time to spend with him. And David in the Psalms over and over again reiterates how important it is for in the morning. It's a good start to your day, folks. I know it's hard. It's hard to get up and open your Bible when you're all sleepy-eyed and you want that cup of coffee. But there's no better way to start your day, to, to set your mind, as it were, on course, than to open up your Bible, to seek Him first in the morning, to realize His steadfast love, that He never moved that we trust in Him alone. We desire to know what He would have us do. Our next decision. We commit ourselves and all that we encounter to Him. We actively believe in His deliverance from our enemies because we run to Him for refuge. That's what we do. That's what we do. We run to Him in our time of trouble. Now, I started talking about repentance. And how does, what does this have to do re with repentance? It has everything to do with repentance because it involves a change. A change of what we used to do, right? What did you used to do when you encountered trouble? Well, don't do it anymore. Run to Him. Run to Him. That's our repentance. That's the change that we can develop in our lives. That's the repentance that God calls us to in our walk of faith. How do we win the believer's war? We run to Him. We live this life of repentance, of, of seeing our sin for what it is. We're calling it out in our own lives. We're confessing it to Him and turning from it. 
We spend time listening and reading his word, discerning decisions from his word, entrusting ourselves to him, committing ourselves to his deliverance. We run to him for refuge. The next section is submitting to the Spirit. Listen to what he says. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good Spirit lead me on level ground. You see, God's will matters to us now, doesn't it? As we have a relationship with Him, as we grow in our love for Him, and we're living this repentant life, what God says matters. Who I worship, who I will serve. And it's a commitment to following. We follow, we will follow, we will be led by the good Spirit of God. How does He lead us? Is it a tingling? Is it an inclination? Is it a whisper? Is it a word of knowledge? No. It's right here. He has given us His entire will, and it's complete. It's, we can go to it any time. Every day, hopefully. We will seek His will. He has given us His complete word. The Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, it's so important to know His will, to know His direction for us. In Acts 26-22, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, Paul says, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Who is Paul depending on as he's, he's in this courtroom with the king? He says, I depend on the word of God. I've not told you anything that, is, that I have conjured up. It's all from Moses and the prophets. That the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. The Word of God is so precious to us. It is better than fine gold. Do you believe that? You are so rich to have the Word of God and to be able to go to it any time you want and to seek His wisdom, His guidance, His will for you. This is another area in which we need to repent. Our sad, lackluster following after God. We want, to give, we want God to give us pointers as long as we have the final word as whether we will take God's advice, but we do not ask for the ability to actually do what God commands. <laughs> For your name's sake, O oh Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. This sound familiar from the earlier part of the psalm? It's an appeal to God's character again. 
and to appeal to God's character for your name's sake. For your name's sake. What does that mean? It means that we're asking for God to be true to everything he is. In fact, we are recognizing that my life is no, not about me. And the things that happen to me, the things that I go through, again, all, my propensity is to make it all about me. And God's saying, no, it never was about you, Dan. <laughs> it's always been all about me. For his name's sake. Wow. Here's an opportunity for us to live in repentance, isn't it? When we start feeling like, it's oh, I'm being wronged, or this isn't going right, or Lord, for your name's sake. And then righteousness. He appeals again to God's righteousness and loving kindness. Look it. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. So, though it's all about God, don't forget his love for you. He is intimately working in you and for you. And he has done it since before you were born, before anyone knew your name. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ and he called you by name. And he said, you will be my child. He loves you. Don't ever think this is a hodgy, stodgy, God removed from us theology. It is not. It's for his name's sake. It's all about him. But he loves you. He loves you. And it's a steadfast love. It's a love that will never be removed. You can't do anything to change his love for you. No one else can do anything to change that. Psalm 135, 6, back to Psalm, that psalm, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. So well, how come David is having all this problem with enemies? Do we have that problem today? Do we have all of it? We try to be peaceable people, don't we? What's all this stuff about enemies? And Well, as we live this repentant life, as we live a life of righteousness, we're going to be faced with more and more real enemies. My enemies are because they are God's enemies. Right? Still, he treats us with love. He treats us with love. Don't miss the positional declaration that is stated and was in verse 2, a declaration of repentance. I am your servant. I am your slave. 
God saves to set us free from sin, but to purchase us for himself. He paid the price of redemption. That's the cost, the payment in Jesus on the cross to grant us forgiveness and to make us obedient people to him. So what is our response? Just quickly, how to win the believer's battle? How do we fight sin in our lives, the indwelling sin that's there? It's a fight. It's a battle. Through repentant prayer, from remembering, remembering who you are, who I am, and who God is. And by trusting in Him, by seeking Him, by obeying Him. He is our only hope. His righteousness, our merciful God, He is our only hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You gave this revelation to to David. And he trusted in You. He trusted in a righteousness that was not his own. He trusted that You would do what You have said. That You would provide a salvation. That You would provide forgiveness. That You would grant repentance. And Lord, so we, we, we recognize this need in our lives of, of living daily in repentance, of turning moment by moment from sin to You to seek to be true to You, to confess our sin, to, to, be, to walk as though we are forgiven people, as we have been clothed in righteousness, Your Son's righteousness. Lord, go with us today that we would fulfill all these things as we cry out to you for mercy. Thank you, Lord.